Hi, and welcome to the UAE Tech Podcast, an exploration on how technology is merging with and reshaping government in the United Arab Emirates. From our offices in Amman, Jordan, and Media City, Dubai, I'm your host, John Lillywhite, with Alba Weber Business. Smart City Internet of Things devices at parking meters government departments for artificial intelligence and blockchain, experiments in hyperloop travel. A little understood but fundamental transition is taking place in the United Arab Emirates, a country first established less than 50 years ago in 1971. It's here that the center of technological gravity is shifting from the private sector to a hybrid relationship involving industrialists, entrepreneurs, diplomats, policymakers, creatives, and citizens. It's also here that signs of a fourth industrial revolution, new social and economic patterns, changes in how we interact with each other across time, distance, and space are emerging. In this series, we'll speak with leaders from across the UAE in an effort to map these macro trends and probe how innovations in big data, network science, and digitalization are not simply revolutionizing government, but could, one day, reshape the systems that power global civilization itself. From our offices in Amman, Jordan, and Media City, Dubai, I'm your host, John Lillywhite with Alba Weber Business, and this is the UAE Tech Podcast. Over the last five years, they have started to consolidate their efforts in a way that I've never seen before. And a good example of that is perhaps Let's let's talk about the the blockchain initiative in, in in general. So this was something that Dubai saw great value in about four or five years ago, actually four years ago. And they said it is very early on. Governments are quite scared of this. Banks are running scared of this. Um, and so instead of running away and putting this under the rug, let us find a way to conduct real dialogue with players from around the world and engage policymakers as well as investors in the country to say, is this technology something to be scared of? Is this something that will make us redundant? And if so, how can we make that transition within the confines of what we think uh, the nation needs in the next 15 or 20 years? Danish Farhan describes himself as someone who is building nations with stories. His personal story and the story of Zishe and Co., the company he founded as a 19-year-old, are intimately connected to several of the trends taking place in the UAE right now. Danish and his team have been directly involved in everything from smart city planning to the UAE's Global Blockchain Council, its artificial intelligence strategy, as well as projects that involve auditing happiness or collaborating with a government-backed future technology accelerator. As such, Danish is the perfect person to introduce and provide an overview to how government and technology are merging inside the UAE at the same time as influencing the rest of the world. Danish, thanks so much for being with us here today. Um, So for listeners from outside the Middle East or outside of the UAE um, who are curious about technology in Dubai and curious about what's happening in the ecosystem in Dubai, you're a really interesting person to speak to because your company, Zishe & Co., seems to be involved in so much of what's going on from 
um, blockchain to smart cities to IoT to automation to government policy and research. So I thought just to kick off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, what Zshay and Code does, and how you kind of got involved into this space? That's a very elaborate introduction. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I I'd like I like to call ourselves an 18-year-old startup, <laughs> and that is often how I describe us um, to governments that we work with, as well as the real startups that have been around for a couple of weeks or so. Um, and 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 perhaps the ideal way of telling you how we got to where where we are at the moment is to tell you how we started. Mm. Um, so we call ourselves anti-disciplinarians, which is a really compl complex word, but it essentially means uh, we're perpetual outsiders. We're not from within the industries that we operated in over the last two decades or so. Um, and what we do today, in a really simple um, form is to say that we help clients understand themselves, build on their strengths, and tell unforgettable stories. Um, everything that we do within the group really fits within these three buckets. Um, the way that we service our clients is, is almost limitless. It could start off with an advisory role, move into storytelling or crafting a narrative at a national level, through to helping implement something at the cutting edge of technology, um, and then move on to researching the effectiveness of some of these initiatives, and then and then proceed with helping future leaders understand the toolkit uh, to build their leadership skills and lead a nation like the UAE to the future. Mm. So that's sort of a combination of, of things that we do under the group, Zisha. Yeah, okay, so let's zoom in on some of that because there's a lot there. So I, I think I remember when I first saw Zisha, probably maybe five, six years ago. I was based in Jordan at the time. Um, and I thought, oh, wow, I like, you know, I like these guys. They're, they're a bunch of creatives, you know, they're into um, digital culture, they're into writing, they're into creativity. They clearly know about what's going on in the startup ecosystem, but they also know about the, the creative scene and, and what's happening in the Middle East generally. But looking at you guys today, you've got, um, you know, under your portfolio, you've got design, but you've also got strategy, reports, Zisha Academy. Um, so all those things you were just talking about seem to be structured under those headings. How do they work together? Um, what, how do they work together and what are you trying to achieve um, as a whole with all of those different aspects in the company? That's a great question. And, and I love how you touched on all of those verticals. Um, so, you know, you... you you um, had alluded to wanting to know what Zisha means, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story of how the name came about. So when, when we were setting up the firm in 2000, um, I literally went through the entire dictionary to try and see what word would help symbolize the philosophy of what we wanted to create back in the day. And this was before the internet had really become mainstream. You know, there were perhaps less than 100 websites in the UAE at that point, uh, including <laughs> the little blogs with... Um, photographs of t-shirts and things. I mean, I'm, I'm talking very early days. Mm. Um, we realized that, there, that, that the web or digital tech is going to transform the region in a, in a drastic way and that somehow we, we were asleep at the wheel as a region. We hadn't really embraced it the way that I thought we may have at that point in, in 1999 or 2000. And so when we started out, we really started off as digital players to help bridge the gap between corporate objectives or governmental objectives and being able to leverage the web in telling that story. So we started off as pure storytellers. So we, we're, we're, we're your description 
of us as creatives is true. That was our first foray into helping solve problems and challenges for our clients. But over the years, we realized we were telling a good story, but storytelling is typically the end of the funnel. Mm. You've already thought about what you want to fix. You've figured out how you want to do it. You've rooted in research that you've already conducted. And so by the time it arrived at somebody like us, um, we were just a mouthpiece. And because we were investors and entrepreneurs, we also started to understand the, the, the other end of the funnel. And I think we were in a position to demonstrate the value to the client, to say, we can work slightly upstream. We can help you define the strategy. We can help you figure out where to play to win. And then we can help do the research to be able to create a compelling case for business. And that's how we evolved into the strategic consultancy. Um, and, and that was then rooted in helping train. So we don't believe in having clients depend on us over the course of years and years. So if there's a way that we can make ourselves redundant by design, that is real value addition to clients who will then respect the work uh, and the ethos that you bring to the table. Because at the end of the day, in a country and a city as young as ours, which is 46 years old, we have, um, I think we've, we've got to set the precedent of building leaders rather than trying to consolidate power. And that's something that we've played up quite a lot over the last decade or so. So that's where the training came in and the research was a byproduct. We were sitting on all of this deep insights on so much tech change at a governmental level. Right. And we thought it's a pity that this ends up as a little slide deck on somebody's desk. Instead, we thought, what if we were able to anonymize some of these learnings, create story-driven lessons um, for the rest of the world to understand the mechanics of how a 46-year-old nation has gotten to where it has in less than half a century? Um, that's sort of really how it evolved into into the different protocols. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I suppose in, in one sense, what you're also implying there is that were it not for technology, um, the UAE wouldn't have been able to leapfrog as fast as it had in such a relatively short period of time. Um, do you have any... I, I agree with you, yes. Yeah, do you have any <clears throat> case studies in particular that you really like or are close to your heart that kind of illustrate a lot of the things you've been talking about? Um, you know, in terms of training leaders, working with the government, delivering change? I'll keep this really quick, but um, in 1972 or 1973, a, an investor, uh, a businessman out of the region, came to meet with the founding father of Dubai, His Highness Sheikh Rashid, and said, I'd like to invest in a, in a plot of land. And His Highness drove this gentleman out to what seemed like forever away from the city of Dubai and said, here's some land and I think this is ripe for, for investment. The um, the businessman, the investor, sort of was quite offended at the offer and said, you know, with with all the respect, I, I I think I'd like to withdraw the offer. You know, we will perhaps connect them another time. Um, and that was the end of the story. Four and a half years later, uh, during the sort of seventy eight, seventy nine, which is less than a decade since the Federation of the UAE was formed, um, this businessman is back again, and this time around, he chances upon the same plot of land which is now home to the largest construction site he had seen in the Middle East. Hmm. And that was the birthplace of the Trade Center. Now, this is important for two reasons. One is it tells you the power of storytelling, which is what has dri driven Dubai, you know, um, uh, to be able to create this grand vision and then make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. The Trade Center was meant to be a prototype of what Dubai would then continue to sell for the next five decades, which is that you could build something which is one spot to live, work, and play without having to leave. And that's what the Trade Center was meant to be. It was, it was Dubai's announcement to the world that we're here. 
and, and look at anything that Dubai launches today, it is exactly the same narrative. And this is now the second generation that is leading the city and the narrative has remained the same. I think that's been, to me, a, a huge part of what's been so inspiring about living in a city like this, where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and storytelling is such an important part of it. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I love that story. Um, my startup that I used to run in the Middle East um, and in part in the yep. UAE was all about storytelling uh, from a slightly different perspective, mm-hmm. basically fiction-based. Um, and I love the right. fact that you're often talking about Oscar Wilde's famous quotation, you know, life imitates art, also one of my favorites. Um, so, right. yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I love that web story, but at the same time, and I think it's it's great we're talking to you as, as one of the initial people on this podcast, because for outsiders, um, particularly Brits, who can yeah. sometimes be a little bit negative about Dubai, I think, there's, sure. I think there's two sides to this. I think on, on the one end, telling Dubai is a superpower when it comes to telling captivating stories and all sorts of multimedia about what it's achieved and fair play to it that you know that's great i also think sometimes from the startup perspective or the creative perspective or even the government perspective dubai is doing so much but ordinary people from outside the country find it hard to pass um, the, the great visuals and, and, and the great public relations with the substance of, of what's actually happening. If you think about the city of Dubai, it is objectively amazing, the city that has risen in such a short period of time out of the desert. And it's the same with a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of smart cities, in terms of blockchain, in terms of automation. Um, behind the flashy visuals, are, there's actually some really serious thinking going on. Um, and I think that, that the storytelling is a really important part of, of, you know, as everyone often comments, Dubai, soft power. But sometimes it's also sure. nice to just get hold of someone like yourself and, and, you know, really kind of zone in on, well, you know, these are the young leaders we're training or this is actually what's happening on the ground in blockchain and this is how this relates to other cities in the world. Um, and, you know, I think that's another reason why... why what your what Zijian Cohen is is doing is interesting because you've got the the meta kind of storytelling, you know, approach where you've right. said it yourself that you're uh, building nations with stories, which is magnificent, you know. And then on the other side, you you. Have, you've Thank got you the so you know you've got the on the ground stuff um, that that yeah. is really quite dynamic. And and so I guess that that's a good segue into you know what are the the really cool things that that you, you're seeing or you're working on in Dubai at the moment. Sure. Okay, I, I think I think thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. I think if you take the meta approach, you're able to connect the dots. And and if you think of governments or cities in general, yes, they're looking to <clears throat> create progress, but it's hard to be able to say we're firing on all cylinders across all dimensions. And mm-hmm. this is something that Dubai is now starting to leverage and do collaboratively. Dubai is in a peculiar position where people that did not know what the United Arab Emirates was um, knew what Dubai was in the (laughs) 80s. And so Dubai was in in many ways uh, a a city nation or city state, if you like. Uh, Today, however, you know, people know Abu Dhabi, people know the UAE, but that wasn't always the case. So Dubai led the way, the UAE embraced a similar methodology or something quite different. But then over the last five years, they have started to consolidate their efforts in a way that I've never seen before. Mm. <laughs> and a good example of that is perhaps let's let's talk about the the blockchain initiative in 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 general. So this was something that Dubai saw great value in about four or five years ago, actually four years ago. And they said it is 
very early on. Governments are quite scared of this. Banks are running scared of this. Um, and so instead of running away and putting this under the rug, let us find a way to conduct real dialogue with players from around the world and engage policymakers as well as investors in the country to say, is this technology something to be scared of? Is this something that will make us redundant? And if so, how can we make that transition within the confines of what we think uh, the nation needs in the next 15 or 20 years, leveraging technology, like you say, divide us that well. And so it all started off with something called the Blockchain Council, where this was the first time where you had people from all verticals under one roof that would need to talk about what is the difference between cryptography and blockchain? Why is um, cryptocurrency taking the, making the headline news while blockchain, the underlying technology, disappearing into the background? Mm. Um, and, and can we deploy this at a governmental level? Does it make sense within a nation? Does it make sense between nations? And so they started this dialogue quite early. Um, a couple of years into the Blockchain Council, they realized, I think it makes sense for Dubai to take the prototype approach that it does so well um, and say that we will mandate government uh, transactions in a way um, or government transactions that are relevant to embrace the blockchain. And let's put some KPIs and let's put some targets and let's go and make this announcement. So it wasn't just an announcement to, to capture the buzz around blockchain. Uh, so, you know, I often use the analogy of Kim Kardashian and, and so blockchain is this season's Kim Kardashian. Um, you know, everyone's interested, but nobody knows why. And yet you use the words and everyone's interested. Right? <laughs> and, and, and I think that's been, that's been, that's been the way that Dubai has leveraged finding the right story mm. or uh, piggybacking the right story. So it makes, it makes the, it makes a grand entrance, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you launch something, uh, you're in the best position to be able to, uh, to, to implement it. So I think the blockchain strategy of Dubai um, stated that if we look at just one use case, which is government paperwork, that families and residents and investors in Dubai need to, to submit to the government, we could potentially save billions of dirhams. Yes, I'm saying billions, not millions of dirhams. Mm. So I think part of the work that, that, that we did with a coalition of, of, of uh, partners on this was to be able to say, all right, let us figure out what is the average number of times somebody has to submit paperwork in the government today, uh, to the government today. And we realized it was about 33 times a year that you've got a photocopy of your license, of your tenancy agreement, of your Emirates ID or of your employment contract to somebody or the other. Uh, this is the fact. So a photocopy, you physically have to drive to do this. And so we realized, okay, that's approximately 411 million kilometers driven every single year just to deliver paperwork to a government entity. And then we started to extrapolate from that. What does that mean for productivity? And it turns out that leads to 25 million hours of productivity loss. But what does that actually mean in terms of documentation? What is the scale we're talking about? Turns out families in Dubai generate 100 million government documents a year. That's not a joke. Um, and if you put a monetary value on that, if you were to remove that burden from society, you would save 5.5 billion dirhams. That's upwards of a billion dollars. A year, which in a way, the storytelling angle of it is roughly the same cost of building the Burj Khalifa wow. every single year. The moment we went out with this narrative, yeah. it was obvious people started to, to sit up and take notice and said, mm -hmm. okay, this isn't some pseudo sort of geeky tech that people are talking about and it's not the hipster way of, of, of taking the cryptocurrency conversation mainstream. No, this is real value. And, and, and that's kind of where Dubai said, all right, we're going to focus on government transactions. 
we're going to focus on, on becoming the testbed for private sector startups to experiment within a sandbox using blockchain in the country or in the city of Dubai. And third, we're going to become the only city that helps build this ecosystem officially as a government rather than a little conference here and a little round table there. That was, that was the philosophy with which um, Dubai started off on, on its blockchain uh, journey. Since then, they've, um, they now have 22 active pilot projects that are underway as of last year. This is, being, this is being driven by Smart Dubai, which is the custodian of the Smart City Initiative of Dubai, mm. together with the Dubai Future Foundation. So both of them are driving this um, as a way to tangibly deliver projects out into the market. That's fascinating. So when we talk about, um, you know, blockchain-powered governments, it's not just a, a throwaway line. There's been a lot of thinking, a lot of collaboration um, and strategy behind it. Yes. And, and I guess the, the, um, the other part of this that, that's kind of fascinating is, you know, one of the things we're looking at in this podcast is the growing intersection of government and technology, which is a slightly more mature... Mm-hmm. Um, discussion to to the one maybe five years ago where it was very private sector yeah. entrepreneur based but yeah. the second thing is you know the fourth industrial revolution um, the capacity of yeah. again a relatively young country like the UAE to play a role in in influencing global case studies and technologies that that really could change um, many aspects of, of the economy the global economy going forwards do you see that every day in your line of work the extent to which Dubai is starting to influence things outside of its uh, and UAE sorry is starting to influence things outside of the country and outside of its borders definitely and, and I think I can tell you firsthand um, as we speak at conferences and forums around the world um, you know the moment you say you're, you're helping drive change at the national level people go oh great that's fantastic you know there's a dozen other people in the room doing that but the moment you talk about the Dubai case study everyone sits up and listens because mm. They know that this is something that's a prototype on steroids. Dubai as a city seems to be adopting that approach where we're happy to fail, but we fail fast so that we can re-pivot ourselves and, and move on to the next big challenge. So I, I see that Dubai's sandbox approach is already starting to pay dividends in, in the number of people, both at the startup level as well as policymakers from around the world who are coming to Dubai to set up official bilateral agreements to say, can we exchange our learnings across the countries or across the cities and, 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 and learn from um, the confines that you have um, as well as deliver solutions that may have been more successful in parts of Europe. A great example of this is Estonia. Estonia is a phenomenal leader. I mean, so we think Dubai is young at 46 years old. Estonia is 26, 27 years old. Mm. Um, and, and look at the extent of their government um, infrastructure that is technology-driven and technology-led. Uh, their e-residency program is really, truly the first of its kind. Um, their, their digital embassies, where they have replica, uh, replica databases of, of all of their digital information on their citizens in, uh, in most of their embassies outside of Estonia. I mean, this is really forward-thinking. And so for, for Estonia and Dubai to collaborate, as they are at the moment, um, is, is exceptional. I already see that as being a validation of Dubai taking the right approach, where forward thinkers that are already accomplishing big things at a global scale are starting to see value in the way Dubai is, is, is promoting use of tech to create radical disruption and, and, and create availability. 
Yeah, I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers in terms of, uh, even in terms of investments, you know, the UAE is investing mm-hmm. not dissimilar amounts into kind of AI research as some European governments. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also moving yeah. at a speed that, you know, perhaps even the UK, um, judging by some of the white papers, you know, they're often quoting what's going on in the UAE, which is, is super interesting. It's almost like you've got countries like the UAE and Estonia, which have almost taken a startup kind of attitude as an entire nation state and they think you know we can compete with with the much older much more advanced industrial nations if we move fast and pace and we innovate um yeah which is 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 it's one of the reasons i really uh, enjoy working out of the middle east too um but right and you've seen this over a long period of time john i think i think i I like to use the terminology startup state Mm. and i think it's the startup states in this decade and potentially in the next two decades that are creating the big change that the large incumbents like the United States, like China, like the EU are not able to. Uh, and, and there's many reasons for that. The legislative framework with which you pass laws and relook at priorities, um, it, 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 it does not exist in the same form in the UAE as it does in, in parts of Europe or the US. And so if you look at, if you look at that axis, uh, if you look at the axes of how the U.S. is pro-business, the EU is pro-citizen, and China is pro-government, um, 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 the UAE or other startup states like the UAE um, are very much across all three axes. And I think mm-hmm. that's the secret of a small player creating a big impact because they're embracing this middle ground approach. Um, and, and you were mentioning AI and AI investment. Now imagine this, if, if we didn't use the word UAE or the name UAE, for, for us to say a country with under 10, 10 million sort of population is on the global stage creating sort of discussions and dialogue at the World Economic Forum around artificial intelligence and being taken seriously by peers, it would have been unthinkable. But the fact that we say it's the UAE, um, people, people take it seriously. I mean, we have a Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, the first of its kind in the world. And the only way that they were able to get a seat on the grown-up table was because they said people are looking at the weaponization of AI, people right. are looking at the competitiveness of AI, people are looking at the, the tech ecosystem that breeds um, uh, success in AI. And the UA said, well, nobody's talking about governance and ethics as a real question and a real danger. Hmm. And so they embrace that as the way that they look at AI, and suddenly they become the middle ground. So oh, it's not just being that that that's what's allowed them to become a global voice in such a short span of time. Um, so that's that's it's my take on this. That is interesting because I know that President Xi Jinping visited a couple of months ago, and apparently mm-hmm. there was a mm-hmm. lot of interest in the blockchain and AI strategy um, for the UAE. Yep. And uh, uh, on one level, yep. that makes um, total sense, and I can see why yep. China would be very in, uh, interested and vice versa. On another level, um, you know, in the UK, I know there were questions about um, data, profe- data protection, um, AI, and ethics. Yeah. And, and what you're saying is that mm-hmm. actually Dubai is is a, a good faith player in that, and, and, and Dubai is looking at the regulation and the ethics uh, and the laws around that just as much as you know Western democracies and the Europeans are. Absolutely, um, absolutely, and and they're engaging stakeholders from the private sector as well as policymakers from not just the city but the country mm. and and that's giving them this really unique advantage to uh, to prototype 
policies and laws around this. So we have something called the UA Council for AI and Blockchain. And the representation across the council is so diverse, you'd be amazed. I mean, from from the from the Ministry of Economy all the way through to health, to smart cities, to data. I mean, it's all driving what the future roadmap for AI needs to be. And there's KPIs for what the government needs to accomplish in the next two-year um, time frame, in the next five-year time frame, in the next 10-year time frame. Have you heard of the, the, the One Million Coders Initiative? No, I haven't. No. So, uh, Sheikh Mohammed announced this thing as part of his humanitarian effort called the Mohammedan Russian Global Initiative. And it's called the One Million Coders Initiative. And the idea here is to help drive the next generation of skilled workers from the Arab world and to catalyze it in any way, shape, or form. And the way they've done that is they've, they've, they've essentially played matchmaker between challenges that need solving using technology and finding opportunities for Arab nations around the world to collaborate in helping deliver on that challenge or to solve that challenge. And the, 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 the target is one million coders. And we've got to get to that point. So you have people as diverse as Damak, a real estate player, mm. through to universities. They're all chugging away towards this goal. And again, this is a great example of the grand story driving real change, which has byproducts, which continue to, it becomes a self-fulfilling virtuous cycle. Um, so yeah, tech as a way of a tech sort of literacy or, or natively thinking with tech is certainly become the operating system for leadership in Dubai. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even, you know, in the UAE, if you even have half a million young people that have basic coding literacy, mm-hmm. that's going to have... Um, mm-hmm. A massive impact but I know Zisha and Co has worked a lot with smart cities and and the idea of a smart city and the future of a smart city um, what are you what are you working on at the moment and again do you have any test cases that you think are, are incredibly neat for a foreign audience who might not know what's going on uh, sure. at the moment uh, yeah I'm happy to, to share them but also maybe a couple of building blocks on how Dubai came or arrived at its smart city initiative. Mm. Um, you know, smart cities have not are not a new concept, um, as you know. Um, they've been around for a long time, for several decades. Um, and what's really funny is that we have been chasing exactly the same utopia <laughs> for the last thirty years on what a smart city is mm. meant to deliver. Do you agree with me? Yeah, yeah, I read. <laughs> it's uh, I read it's one of almost exactly the same. This. Yeah, it's fascinating. Right. And, and so we, we fundamentally believe that it's smart cities is just a shiny new box to sell all technology. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of vendors dislike when we say that, but it's true. Um, and, and, and given that cities are working to, uh, at looking at ways of partnering with the private sector, the big five tech companies always find a way to say, here's our solution and here's how this will benefit your city and we will, we will take on some of the investment. But then we become vendor cities, you know. You've got a Samsung city and you've got an IBM city and you've got a, a Huawei city. And they're not really cities anymore. They're, they're really just test, test, test um, cases for cities, for vendors. Um, so in Dubai, what was unusual was that um, when we started working with them, they, they wanted to go out and say, we want to aim to become, towards becoming one of the, the smartest cities in the world. Um, we found a way to, to re-anchor that conversation and said, well, there's going to be 500 cities across China and and India who are going to say exactly the same thing in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps it's worthwhile for us to anchor ourselves on a grander story. And so the idea of happiness um, as a metric, as a scientific metric to start measuring ourselves again, started to emerge within the Dubai government, rooted very much in the poetry of Sheikh Mohammed. So this is really quite interesting. So it was a 
poetic pursuit of, of Sheikh Mohammed sort of questioning what is the role of a leader. And, and he answers it in one of his poems as, as being happiness for, for his people. And so we thought, what if you route that to the end goal of smart cities, which becomes to create happiness for people? Mm-hmm. And technology just becomes the, the means towards the end, which is happiness. And that's kind of where Dubai's conversation around smart cities started. And so it was very unusual. A lot of other nations took notice and started to collaborate quite heavily right from the very beginning. Um, they also made a very clear distinction between saying we're not a smart government because Dubai has had a smart government or e-government initiative since 1999. Uh, they wanted to embrace the private sector just as much as they were focused on the government uh, or the public sector. Uh, a, a couple of great examples of, of tangible case studies that have come out of this is the Dubai Health Authority has found a way to unify health records um, on, on, on across legacy fragmented systems where you really truly are connected across the government on health records. This is, this is one of the things that would have only been possible had there been a unified effort at a city level rather than one entity trying to create a consolidated database. Yeah. That, that's, a, that's, that's one great example of something that's already, it's called Salama and it's already up and running. Um, the Dubai police has experimented with getting their incident response system that is IoT driven. Uh, and again, it's part of the, the, the pilot projects that the smart city drove to say, here are, the, here are our four areas that we want to create impact on. And here's our six dimensions. I'm not going to bore you with this. This is rooted in, 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 in smart city methodology. Yeah, was that, that the EU separate. mapping report or something? Um, I know Absolutely, like, indeed. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Yes, yeah, so that, 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 that is... Dubai is working across all six dimensions, one of the only cities in the world. Is that correct? Absolutely. So you're referencing Dr. Boyd's sort of the wheel framework, mm. and, and that is correct. There's very few cities who have embraced all six dimensions genuinely, not just sort of uh, lip service, but quite genuinely so. Um, the, another, another great one is the airport smart pass, where you have the ability of unifying uh, the exp- or, or simplifying the experience of going through immigration, especially when you're exiting the UAE, oh, using your digital identity, and that's you know it's already up and running, and it's mm. been it's been phenomenal. Um, all of these things could have happened individually, but the fact that they happen collaboratively, and they're governed by a singular entity that is governed by a board that has representation from across the city is a really unique model for smart cities. Typically, smart city initiatives sit under the mayor's office or the governor's office or they sit within the tech side of, of the city, so i.e. the government, the, mm. the um, IT, ICT for the government. But in Dubai, it's, it's actually standalone. It works alongside agencies rather than um, as one sort of solo ranger trying to create change. So these, are, these, are, these are just some of the case studies that come to mind at, at the moment. But one other thing that's worth noting is that they embrace data as a as a key That's what I was going to ask you next. Yeah. So it does seem right. like behind so, a lot so, of what yeah, we're discussing, you know, data is at the center. Um, and that was, yeah, that was exactly what I was going to ask. So, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so data has been, it, it's been, it's been wonderful to watch Dubai mature across the data um, access in, in, in the way that they have. Um, they set up they set up a, an establishment by decree to, to look at data as a priority, not just from a safety and security standpoint, but also from real value generated from data. So you can only start to make real value from data visible 
once you have access to a large volume of it. And I think this is where, if you look at the global convergence of the amount of data that we're creating, so 90% of all of the data that exists on our planet has been created in the last two years alone. This is a stat that you've heard several times before. Dubai embraces this and understands this and says, well, okay, so we're sitting on a data footprint unlike ever before, but then we also have access to storage capacity with the cloud and processing power with chips that are becoming quicker and quicker with Moore's law every every two years. Mm. And then we have AI to help us sift through all of this data. So these, this convergence was something that Dubai picked up on quite early and decided to make data a true horizontal across the city and all of its ICT as well as decision making. I think it's important to, to create the distinction. A lot of people deal with data as a resource Dubai deals with it and, and actually calls it on record as the next natural resource of the UAE that is more valuable than oil. This is on record from the from essentially the the, the CEO of uh, of Dubai Data, which is the, the the authority leading this initiative. And so they say, all right, we've got access to data, but then we also have the responsibility of creating value from data in a way that decision makers are able to make decisions on the basis of real-time data. Mm. I think this is where a lot of the governments do not quite fully embrace the last mile of what to do with data. They do a lot of work governing and collecting data. How do I make it meaningful to, yeah, collecting data, but not so much creating that last mile for decision makers to say, I will do this because of X and I will do this because of Y. I think that's where Dubai is, is prototyping this. I, I can't say they have accomplished what they set out to in, 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 in all its totality, but they've certainly created some serious waves in making data front and center for leadership across the city. Yeah, and I remember you mentioned something about a happiness dashboard where you can literally log Indeed. in. And, you know, So I'm, I'm guessing that part of the idea for that was as a prototype, uh, as a way of visualizing different data sets. And, and tracking sentiment in, in the country as a whole. And we've been really privileged to, to, have, to have been part of that story of the happiness meter right from the very beginning, where the happiness meter emerged as an idea to prove the viability of smart cities anchored around happiness. And what we didn't think uh, would happen so quickly was its proliferation across not just the public sector, but also the private sector. So it was built as an internal system mm. and then very quickly converted into this API-based system where everyone from the cinemas to the, to the hospitals were able to, 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 to get on the system. And what do they get in return? They get a great analysis of what the sentiment of their customers looks like at any given point. And what the city gets in return is this wonderful heat map of all of the experiences that are driving delight for citizens across the city. And that, in a way, completely reversed the role of accountability at city leadership. So if you think about it, typical leadership would, would report to the city leadership on a quarterly basis, on an annual basis, and therefore you can't retroactively go out and fix a problem that happened six months ago. Mm-hmm. But with something like the happiness meter, there's the right, they're the right governance model to be able to say, happiness levels have dropped three points today, it's worth investigating. Or happiness levels in this area or this service provider have gone up seven points, and that's worth investigating. So this real-time accountability has just made the government more agile and responsive in, 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 in a seriously spectacular quick turnaround time that I've yet to see. So this is a wonderful case study of data and smart city objectives combining together in a way that the end user, a typical citizen, will experience and understand.
Yeah, and I mean, in a way, it's also an, an entirely new way of thinking about government itself and governance itself, um, which is another Absolutely. reason UA is becoming incredibly interesting. So, look, Danish, thanks so much for your time. Before we go, one more question. Towards the start of the podcast, you sure. you mentioned that there was a strength in being an outsider and in looking at yeah. things as an outsider. And I'm sure a lot of people, when they're you know, curious about the UAE or looking into the UAE, one of their first questions is, well, you know, how do I get involved? It's very far away. Finding information is, is very hard. What is the investment climate like? Um, what is the scene like in general? Maybe you could, could you possibly talk to that, talk a bit about your experience of looking from the outside in at times at the same time as being an insider? I think that's a really wonderful question. It's a, it's a, it's a layered question. Um, I think the, the storytelling angle has, has an upside, but also has a downside. Mm. If we tell a story that is so grandiose that if you're sitting in the United States and you Google thing, you know, trying to do some research, some desktop research on Dubai or the UAE, you may be put off by the superlatives that you come across in the, on the first two or three pages, which, is, which are all well-rooted um, in reality, but they're more relevant to audiences that already understand what Dubai is. And so to say we're launching the world's first initiative of some kind, it's meaningful to people here because we're already operating and we've set our goal high. But internationally, that narrative may not always attract the right attention or may alienate people to think, oh, well, this is too big for me and maybe this isn't the right opportunity. So as a startup, yeah. as an investor, um, looking outside in may seem a little bit jarring, but I would urge against um, sort of creating that impression of Dubai from the outside. It really is this wonderful playground that allows you to experiment and, and test and prototype in a way that very few parts of the world um, would allow you to do something like that. Our, uh, our experience working in this has, I think it has taught us a, a few things. Um, it helps to be incidental and not always by design. We've evolved incidentally and not by design. It hasn't been a grand plan of 20 years to do what we do today. Mm. Um, I, I, don't, I also do not think that we would have managed to do what we've done or to create the little impact that we have um, had we been in any other city because we were very fortunate to be in a city that was growing as rapidly as we were. And so for us, that story intersects in some ways and some milestones are shared and some milestones are our milestones versus the city on its own. I think we've, we've taken a lot from it, but it's always helping the outsider because we have the liberty of not following the rules or the status quo within industry. And that has allowed us to really flourish and has been a, a guiding principle uh, for us. And I always use the analogy of dots on a paper. You know, we, we use one phrase more than any other phrase in, in, in our history, which is connecting the dots. You've got enough people putting the dots on a piece of paper, but the space in between the dots is where nobody wants to either spend time or to think about, and that is precisely where we live and exist and, and, and create value, is connecting the dots by being in between the dots. That's been the philosophy of being an outsider slash insider. It's worked well for us, and we've learned from our inspiration, which is the city of Dubai, really. Well, that's great. Danish Farhan, thank you so much for your time. <laughs>